Wir sind Freunde für immer im Leben, streiten vorwärts in unserer Zeit. Und das Wort, das der Freund uns gegeben, ist im Herzen des Freundes geweiht. An der Moskwa, an der Weichsel, an der Moldau, an der Spree, stehen Waffen, Brüder, Genossen, von des Frieden starken Volks. Amen. Welcome to the Kingless Generation, a podcast on the deep history of class struggle, paleo parapolitics, and the demonology of capital. I'm your host, Fergal Schmudlock. Let me say right here at the start, this is a listener-funded podcast. I'm proud of the work that I'm doing here, and uh, I really enjoy it, but it really helps me to balance my schedule and uh, everything. If you can go to patreon.com slash irregnata, unruled in Latin feminine singular, to contribute and become a member of the kingless generation for just about the lowest possible price there in order to just still have uh, Patreon not take an ungodly percentage of your money. If you can't do that, you know, that's fine too. Uh, we a Potlatch gift exchanges are an officially accepted mode of payment in the Kingless generation. Send me a message. Say hi. You know, I'll give you episodes for that. Whatever. Uh, you can join the Discord where we discuss and share materials and you can get all the readings of things that I'm working on, the materials that I use to produce this podcast, support independent, non-corporate sponsored media that is advancing historical materialist understanding of the world with the purpose of changing it to get us beyond class society, beyond inequality in relations of production. And at least as important as becoming a patron is like, share, tell a friend, leave a positive review. So this time I have a show entitled Azov versus the Orcs, a dialectical demonology of whiteness. Whiteness as we know from the White Devils episode, is really something that comes into being in the early modern period when world production has really shifted from the production of nutrition itself, of grain under the grain state, to the production of value itself for exchange, production for exchange. Another way to say that would be merchant capital, right? All of these frameworks are provisional, and their tools that we use at certain times. And I'm always hard at work trying to make my frameworks uh, more subtle, responsive to uh, the facts of reality, right? But of course, uh, a big part of my whole neo-materialist turn that I want to recommend to the world right now is about embracing these ways of understanding that had been thrown away in the past by sort of postmodernist uh, cultural commentators, right? Oh, those narratives, those, those evolutionary progressions, you know, those are all just Eurocentric and those are all... No, without those, you cannot move beyond a Eurocentric paradigm. If it, it implies oblivion of your paradigm. And if you don't see a progression somewhere. You have to draw lines and you have to make your analysis, right? Well, that's what we're doing here with whiteness. 
With respect to some recent news, of course, we have what everyone was sort of afraid might be World War III starting any minute, and it still could be. Uh, although I happen to know I will share a little bit of uh, insider information from somewhere that the Rolling Stones are planning a tour of Europe in the coming summer. And the insurance for that is astronomical. You cannot cancel it. And they would not sell that insurance if they thought that there was any chance that it would be canceled. Okay? And they're going ahead with that. So somebody, I think, you know, at that point, they know that it's not going to be, all of Europe and Germany and everywhere is not going to be enveloped in nuclear exchanges or anything anytime real soon, right? I think rather this is a tool to bring the EU under the thumb of the United States as it was beginning to stray toward the Russian orbit. Although, of course, and here, let me lay out real quick. In 2014, there was the Maidan coup, and this was an American-backed coup, and the government that resulted uh, there was the famous leaked audio from Victoria Newland, N-U-L-A-N-D. You can search that. Uh, mostly what you'll get from that leaked audio is going to be the phrase, fuck the EU, uh, which is really meaningful and interesting in its own right. But really, the really interesting thing is the way that she at that time was naming every member of the new Ukrainian government. No, what that totally reveals is that that was completely an American puppet state that was created at that time. And many, maybe even more important than the Newland phone call, just forget that, whatever. Uh, they proceeded to ban all socialist communist parties of any type. They enacted hard right uh, reforms and put up statues to all the Nazi collaborators, put, gave awards to old Nazi collaborators. This is very much like the boys are back in town from the Eastern Front of World War II. So it's continued genocides in the Donbass region is uh, directly the provocation for uh, Russia to finally invade, as everyone from Henry Kissinger on would be uh, warning, right? And the new generation, well, you know, I don't know. There's, there's ignorance. Some people think that it's just ignorance and it's just uh, Obama-era idealism of, some, of a certain kind. Uh, I wonder. I think they know the falling rate of profit. They know that capitalism is completely continuing to fail at meeting humanity's needs in the coming summer. This is going to become even more apparent than it was over the winter. We're heading now into spring. Uh, here in Japan, we just had cherry blossom season. And uh, that was really beautiful, by the way. Uh, yeah, I hope you are getting out. I hope you're getting to see and enjoy the spring colors and the changes in the seasons enjoy it uh you know not least because it may be one of the last times that you or any other human being gets to see it the ecosystem time is limited and we might as well enjoy it and record it and witness it at least right at least and i do think at least that's an important spiritual point that i want to make too is that I just realized recently what Gnosticism actually means. I was really starting to think people talk, you know, and I would identify this as one of the weaknesses in my, one of my critiques of parapolitics, the left, right, the parapolitics left, uh, as opposed to sort of the, the ML left, right? 
I, I find myself located between these two things, perhaps. Okay. Uh, I just tweeted uh, this morning, I think, uh, retweeted a, a, someone found that Marx and Engels themselves were aware of a British based, perhaps, plot to hide and protect John Wilkes Booth after he had assassinated Abraham Lincoln. Um, that's in the, the war between the states in the, in the U.S. was one of the sources, and maybe one other thing. Uh, so that right there, that proves that Marx and Engels were parapolitical thinkers. They believed in and they sought to understand conscious, direct exercise of class power, often covertly. And that's the form that it's often going to take, right? So they themselves were not only just interested in blind class forces working themselves out. No, 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 right? Uh, but then, like, within the parapolitical left, there are more... Some of the more spiritually oriented people are there, and I think that's actually a positive thing. We want to... Uh, I, I Here at this podcast, we're very interested in a certain kind of leftist spirituality. But there's certain aspects that sort of would take Gnosticism in weird ways. And, and in fact, the worst tendency of the parapolitical left would be uh, precisely this, you know, just I know about it. The world is totally hopeless. And anyone who's trying to get you to actually organize and act in the world is an op, is a, is a plant. And what you have to do is just be a vigilant citizen and know about the thing, and that's salvation right there. I don't agree with that. But uh, I recently listened to, uh, I'm, I'm working my way actually reading Graeber, Wengro, Dawn of Everything, right? Um, but I also listened to Wengro's interview on Seriously Wrong, the Canadian kind of anarchist, I would say really kind of just I mean, bordering on like anarchist liberal from my more kind of ML perspective, I would say this, right? Uh, this is something else that kind of can't quite get with. You could see like a lot of, for me, the dark side of Wengro there because the idea openly, they ridicule the idea of historical materialism, the idea that uh, you can scientifically analyze human societies, and that you know, and their the form which their mockery takes is sort of like, oh, they mu somebody must have eaten too much fish. You know, a society starts eating so much fish, and then necessarily they have to start having hierarchy and oppression and all the rest of that. Well, when you to point taken, you know, I mean, nothing is totally determinist, uh, and even if it were, that would not be skillful for us to believe. Right. So this is, I would use the, the Sanskrit there as upaya, right, a, an expedient means, a thing that would put us on the path that we want to be on, as opposed to, you know, is it true or not, which is a separate question. Uh, also an important question, but a separate question. Right. So it's at least a good upaya, even if it's not true. Uh, right. To believe that we can choose to change. Uh, but at the same time, if that's if that's 100 percent all there is. Then we're back in really just a liberal view of history. This is a bourgeois liberal history. I think Althusser gets us in this place ultimately as well. You know, this is often considered like orthodoxy in academic Marxist circles, but uh, the idea that, yeah, we're not, we don't really believe in historical materialism anymore. 
We don't really believe that you can scientifically understand the laws of motion, as Engels says, and, and in, in some sense predict the future and learn how you might act to change the world, right? Uh, and if you repudiate that completely, then I really think you are stuck back in this world of great men and great parties and their ideas and their characters and their wills. And then the only thing that you can say is wrong with you. Oh, what's wrong with us then? You know, like, why, why are we uh, failing so miserably right now? Uh, oh, well, we just don't want it enough. It just becomes this Protestant thing. And, you know, Protestantism cool in some ways. Uh, but there's a serious theological and sort of philosophical point there, uh, which is that if sola fide, right, by f- salvation by faith alone, and if you totally ignore, like, James uh, saying faith without works is dead, or Jesus in, I think, the Gospel of John says, uh, and not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, but only he who does the will of my Father will enter the kingdom. Okay, if you ignore those things completely and you're a really unbalanced kind of Protestant point of view, uh, what you, you only have faith. So if you have a problem, your only thing you can say is, I just don't believe hard enough. I have to believe harder, right? And this is the same, leaves us in the same kind of place, this anarchistic uh, voluntaristic, we can say voluntaristic, because it, it relies entirely on our will, right? We just don't will it hard enough or something. And we don't have the leaders, the great men and women uh, that that can uh, have character or whatever uh, to make the events happen. Well, I don't think that's right. <laughs> Absolutely not, right? I definitely think we need uh, at least a, a big, big, big space for scientific understanding, right? Uh, and nowhere more than when we're talking about whiteness, the history of whiteness, and the core role that it plays in the birth of the current world system of capitalism, because you had merchant capital, and this had been growing in ancient India, China, and Persia, uh, through the really ancient Silk Road, uh, Buddhism is born at this time among the a kind of Indian, ancient Indian bourgeoisie. And yeah, let me go through real quickly this kind of outline once more because uh, it probably sucked the way that I did it in those early episodes. You know, I heard somebody say recently, when you start a podcast, step one is do some early episodes. Step two is delete those episodes and don't, because you won't be very good at whatever you're doing. You won't have found your voice yet or whatever it is, right? I don't know. So you have uh, merchant capital growing in the Eurasian continent, really, mostly kind of in Central Asia and China, right, as far east as China. And the Roman Empire immediately taps right into that. That's the only thing, you know, the thing that later on gets taken for the, the birth of all civilization or whatever, they don't care, by people like the British, right, by people like the British Empire, they see Greece and Rome as being the center of something, right? Greek thinkers always are looking to Egypt and Persia, the Roman Empire immediately looking to link up trade routes with Persia, India, China. They get right, they, they move the capital to Constantinople. And that's going to be very important uh, for this episode as well. Constantinople, the eastern capital of the Roman Empire, which survives all the way into what we would call uh, the Renaissance period. And it's really this striving after. So, so the, that's the fi- last remnant of the Roman Empire. And it was the, the core of the Roman Empire. 
that's they cared about trading and getting that silk and everything and and all the value from the the east right they have merchant capital in their own way um but there's just you know there's this great growth of it over time and we get to uh roman empire and persia um the sassanid uh empire right are collapsing and then between them islam arises this kind of decentralized anarchistic uh, theologically very simple um kind of monist uh and and this as i discussed with Khalid, right this allows it to interface with the kind of nihilism of buddhism right uh, because monism can can interface right with nihilism and and the not various kinds of buddhism become pantheistic in all kinds of ways right and then also monistic, right? If you believe in nothing, that's not actually so different from believing like everything, uh, one source of everything that is that is elsewhere, that is fundamentally elsewhere, right? So you get all kinds of philosophical dialogue there. And that's important too, the kind of Islamic view of the Indian world, uh, right? The, the pagans, as they say, there's all kinds of interchange there. They get images which are picked up later by Western Europeans because all this time Western Europeans uh, as the Abbasid Caliphate and subsequent caliphates are growing merchant capital really to an unprecedented degree uh, from in the time from the 7th, 8th uh, centuries to uh, the 14th, 15th, right? We have the transmission of all kinds of Chinese science and inventions like uh, the compass, like printing, like uh, we have Indian mathematics, right? Uh, the the so-called Arabic numerals are actually more accurately would be called uh, Hindu numerals. That's where it actually comes from. And then from this absolute backwater of Europe, right? In intervening years, you get the Crusades. Uh, but... What we're going to be looking at today is is crusader. Well, not crusader. Um, what do you? There's not a great term in English for this, and this is something I want to address. Um, you know, it's uh, uh, libros de caballerías castellanos, right? Um, so books of chivalrous adventures, right? Even though you know this is an English uh, genre originally, the the stories of King Arthur, uh, right, are what the Iberian authors are taking over and embellishing for their projects. And it seems to be clerics who are doing this, church people. Uh, you can definitely draw a certain kind of straight line. This would be an interesting thesis of this podcast. You can draw. Uh, so the, the clerics, the clergy of pre-modern societies are the intelligence agencies of those societies. They do the psyops. They write the fake news. Those kinds of people pretty much directly morph. You know, you can think about think about the Jesuits and as a step, an intermediary step. Uh, Franciscans were doing similar things, you know, alongside the Crusaders, right? But those we see even with like El Cantar del Miocid or the Song of the Cid, right? The Song of the Cid seems to have been written by a cleric. And it is an early attempt, even though it is it, the the kind of anti-Muslim and, and like anti-Moorish 
prejudices in it are so embryonic and so kind of like still really not binaristic. That binary has not formed yet in a very strong way in the Song of the Cid because there's still Moorish friends. There's Moorish allies. Uh, there's even Jewish allies, although they don't treat them very well, right? And you see that go down through crusade fiction and then uh, we have, and that, that's the genealogy that in fact uh, the the first earliest really major work that survives in the form that it was kind of rewritten in right around the year 1500 um, by Garci Rodriguez de Montalvo uh, who had strong connections to merchant networks and he lived in one of the last frontier merchant towns, right? Um, Medina del Campo. Yeah, Medina del Campo, um, which Medinat is, right? This is a uh, Arabic word for a city, isn't it? Uh, so uh, he lives there and he's he's closely connected. I'm reading a whole book. Um, I'll be able to say more after I finish uh, about his connections to the Catholic monarchs, Ferdinand and Isabella. The so-called Reconquista of Spain finishes up right about, is it the same year, 1590 or 1492, I think. It might even be 1492 precisely that. Um, finally, the last Muslim stronghold of Granada is taken, and you have the birth of all kinds of, you know, limpieza de sangre, cleanness of blood. Uh, the idea of whiteness is, is really being born at, the, at this point, right? Uh, it has antecedents. There are sort of dialectical, and, and this is what I mean by a kind of dialectical demonology here. Um, I think whiteness is a huge demon that contributes to the birth of modern uh, capitalism. And it is something that we, we really have to deal with still, uh, even today and even in the Ukrainian conflict. This is my thesis here that I'm uh, at the 19-minute mark, I think I got around to stating my thesis. That's, that's pretty good for this podcast. Not good for a scholarly paper. Um, I've had teachers tell me, it's not a mystery novel. You have to <laughs> come out and just say, this is what I'm going to say right away. So, yeah, that's what I'm linking up here. That's what I'm linking up. And I'm linking up the ideas of East and West. Uh, we have seen these horrible pictures of men, women, uh, usually Roma, uh, so-called gypsy, right? People who come originally from the Indian subcontinent, but they've lived as kind of nomads on the periphery of Europe for a long, long time. And they have their sort of echoes or analogs or, or, you know, what's the precise relationship? Nobody really knows um, in the so-called tinker communities, uh, even in the Atlantic island nations uh, today, like Ireland or Britain. Uh, so, and, and I have a lot to say about Ireland as well, actually. I was just listening to uh, a kind of very uh, liberal, pro-EU kind of think tanky uh, Irish people uh, create a numerous podcasts. Actually, there's like they're really cranking out the podcasts uh, over there, and I think that has something to do with our kind of oral orality of our culture. 
And this is something that we would share with indigenous groups from the Americas, the culture of sitting and listening for a long time to someone speak, tell a story, sing a song, have a debate, right? And this feeds into a, a decentralized uh, and egalitarian political culture. Uh, I know I have some Irish listeners, and uh, but, so I'm a diaspora, I'm half Irish and, and half uh, Volga-Deutsch. In fact, so my heritage is really going to figure in this episode as well. Uh, Volgadeutsch are Germans who were brought to Russia and settled along the Volga River around about the 18th century, 1700s, by Catherine the Great. And they never really mixed super well. Uh, with the the Russian populace, and uh, they get into all kinds of trouble later with uh, this and that, right? The Russian Revolution, which is when my family left. You know, they got their own SSR, they got their own sort of um, Soviet uh, autonomous region. It might be an SAR, autonomous region, uh, under the Soviet Union, and so on. That Volga River, that exact same Volga River, is the place where we saw, like, Ibn Fadlan coming to learn about the Viking Rus, the Kievan Rus, right? This is, the, this is Ukraine. This is Ukraine. And he was meeting up with these Viking raiders who were bringing slaves from precisely places like Ireland. So that's interesting to think about um, with respect to these, these Irish podcasts now uh, who, you know, young, uh, young bougie think tanky Irish people making podcasts, uh, supporting the Ukrainian, uh, supporting the mobilization of all the liberal uh, sleeper cells that were all the seeds that were planted in America through sort of Russiagate stuff, right? Well, in in Ireland, you don't quite have that. And you have, in fact, uh, a, a strong, strong tradition of neutrality. Ireland is not a member of NATO, proudly, I would say. Sort of famously or infamously, perhaps, uh, Ireland did not join in World War II because if they had, they would be uh, basically a subsidiary of the British. And that was something that the newly created, newly independent republic, you know, and particularly you could put this down to Eamon de Valera, the first president of Ireland and his sort of, you know, you could discuss this uh, as like his personal rivalry with Winston Churchill, which is really interesting. There's some details there. Winston Churchill kept trying to use uh, the northern six counties as a bargaining chip. And many, many times he sent, you know, midnight telegrams. There's speculation he was drunk. It was a midnight drunk telegram to uh, to Dev, you know, over in, in Dublin uh, saying, you can ha- imagine you can have you. You really want to read it in a Trump voice, I think. Actually, I think it literally the, is worded something like, "A nation once more, nation once more." Imagine, you can have it all. You can be uh, the six counties. I'll give them to you if you just come into the come into the war on our side. That's all you need, right? Uh, that's he said this a couple of times, right? And so for them, him to then later, you know, you, uh, these telegrams didn't come out by the way, for quite a long time. Uh, I think maybe until after he was dead, they were probably declassified. Uh, but 
before and after that, of course, he's officially on record saying that Northern Ireland is a crucial part of uh, the UK. And of course, we love them and we would never um, let them go and all that. You know, like that's what the loyalists need to believe that the sentiment is on the other side. Right. Well, uh, we know that's not true. Uh, so that's interesting. But um, yeah, this one podcast was very, maybe I'll just not actually name them quite. But you have the, you have a, a lady kind of fronting it and she and her guy friend, uh, they, it opens with like this kind of collage kind of uh, audio montage, very kind of twee thing. And, it, and they say, we're friends and yeah, we're just a couple friends, you know, hanging out in Brussels or wherever. I don't know where they actually record it. Maybe they record it in Ireland. But um, and I think, you know, I'm just I'm in the diaspora myself. So, uh, you know, whatever. I'm a yank. I'm a plastic patty. But I think this program is actually directed at the diaspora as well. They are selling in this. Their main sponsor is like, you know, a box of Irish heart or something, you know. Uh, they'll send you a box of, of products from Irish small businesses and for a monthly fee, right? It's a great gift. And it does sound like a great gift. That's great. Uh, but, you know, uh, the, the content of this, all of a sudden they banged out three or four episodes in the past week about Ukraine and about Ireland's relationship to Ukraine and about all the Ukrainian refugees coming and all, the, you know. Well, okay. Uh, <laughs> and, and also about the policy of neutrality, where they don't quite dare ever to criticize it, but they lay it out. And at one point, your man, uh, the, the man, says something, oh, you know, neutrality is quite an entrenched cultural uh thing and that's a direct quote and then another time he sort of said some he really shows his hand at a, another m moment that i think i was on my bicycle when i heard this so i couldn't like write it down but he said uh something like you know that oh this will be a real hard policy to a hard idea to sort of overturn in people's minds he comes out and says that at one point and then he immediately walks it back and says well not that it needs to be overturned I mean, we don't, maybe you don't want to overturn maybe you like it maybe it's great right uh but by the end of this the thing they turn they do a heel turn all of a sudden here hey here it's, i'm bringing on uh, john cullum mcfighter jet from the irish military and by the end of it, they very much are saying, uh, oh, we've got cyber attacks. We've got cyber attacks coming. We've got Google. Ah, oh, sure, haven't we got Google and Facebook and all the, the, the greatest companies in the world are putting their uh, EU headquarters here in Ireland and, uh, you know, just to dodge all the, and, and Pfizer, you know, just to dodge all the taxes, right? Uh, that's, what it, that's what it's for. And uh, what if they get, cyber attacked it's our fault it's our fault uh you know russia can be flying russia can fly their fly their cheeky uh you know submarines and uh, whatever they do right right up to the coast and we don't even have equipment to detect them britain has to even detect that they're there and actually go and and deal with them because we're not a proper country like right we don't we don't have and and if it was really uh people's army that was authentically protecting the people and the working class, advancing their interests and building socialism, that would be one thing, right? I'm, I would not be against the exercise of military force per se. But uh, this is very much unambiguously actually 
the army needs to be made to protect capital and not even just Irish capital, is it? What is Google is not Irish capital. Pfizer is not even Irish capital, is it? Hmm. So it's an appeal to national pride. It's an appeal to rivalry with Britain too now. Because they did Brexit, you see. They're not as cosmopolitan and liberal and, and European as we are with our breakfast rolls and whatever, you know. There's this whole complex of, of Irish culture, uh, Celtic tiger and after sort of trying to uh, affect a certain kind of internationalist, bourgeois liberal internationalism. But at the same time, a great big contradiction there would be direct provision and the treatment of refugees, which is already an enormous issue in Ireland. Uh, there are refugees coming uh, into the EU from countries that are not nearly as white as Ukraine, and that's really the important part to, to realize. You know, they don't get... I mean, there are people talking about it, and including, I think, this podcast. They do uh, discuss it to their credit, right? Uh, but, you know, nothing like the Ukraine thing. And there's a reason for that. These are people from... Africa from the Middle East, right? And they're being housed in Ireland, and it's being done in a way that amounts to a tremendous violation of human rights, and it'll only get worse. It's this whole kind of mob racket where they're funneling money from public coffers into the pockets of landlords and owners of hotels that are being rented out to do this now that hotels are no longer profitable. And the people are not allowed to cook hot food. They're being given, they're given an allowance of a certain amount of euro a day. And they have to live on, you know, birdseed, basically, uh, enforced just because they can't, you know, be too luxurious or anything, right? It's a preview of things to come. Uh, I don't know that Ireland is the worst case out there uh, at the moment, but it uh, doesn't matter. It should be the best case. Ireland should be the best case. You know, we, we're supposed to be able to understand the, the plight of oppressed peoples around the world, and we're supposed to be an ally. And we, we've, you know, t taken our really good stands over the years. Uh, and being neutral is, is really one of the great ones. But if there's a military alliance that Ireland should be joining, it sure as shit is not fucking NATO. Uh, which is Nazi shit, and we're seeing it, that right now on full display. And the liberals have been brainwashed to an amazing degree to not see this, uh, at least for the moment. Uh, remains to be seen what will happen. There's a lot of chinks in that armor. There's a lot of cracks. There's a lot of cracks here. Uh, you know, and if, if Ireland was going to join, uh, say, the new non-aligned movement, that is forming in the periphery of the kind of Russia-America uh, split here, even if they were going to help uh, some of the opposing nations, India, China, Russia. If they acted like Cuba, that's what I want to say. You know, if the, if the Irish army was acting like Cuba, sending sons and daughters to fight uh, and shed their blood for the liberation of other people, now, that is an alliance that I could really get behind, and that's a military alliance that I could really support. No vergessen sind niemals die Taten, aus der Freund unsere Heimat befreit. 
Prächtig wachsen die friedlichen Saaten, Kommunismus heißt unsere Zeit. An der Moskwa, an der Weichsel, an der Moldau, an der Spree stehen Waffen, Brüder, Genossen von des Friedens starken Volks. Amen. I guess I'm really getting into this Irish. Uh material at this point in the podcast, so I'll go ahead and read what I, I have James Connolly, of course, whom I think in this podcast I listened to, they almost, they said his name once as if they were, and I think they were thinking of this text, anticipating an excellent counter-argument to what they were saying, but perhaps deciding in the end not to even touch on it, lest this come to light. I think they were thinking of socialism and nationalism, which is from January 1897, and he lays out basically the exact, it's a very accurate prophecy of what has happened with Irish independence in the absence of a socialist transition, right? And the absence of really any kind of socialist transition. You know, there isn't anything even like Cuba or Vietnam where they're sort of trying to do something, but uh, this is just, it's worth almost, you know, it's only like three pages, but, and you could almost uh, read it all. But I'll just read, you know, uh, it may be pleaded that the ideal of a socialist republic, implying as it does a complete political and economic revolution, would be sure to alienate all our middle class and aristocratic supporters who would dread the loss of their property and privileges. What does this objection mean? That we must conciliate the privileged classes in Ireland but you can only disarm their hostility by assuring them that in a free Ireland, their privileges will not be interfered with. That is to say, you must guarantee that when Ireland is free of foreign domination, the green-coated Irish soldiers will guard the fraudulent gains of capitalist and landlord from the thin hands of the poor just as remorselessly and just as effectually as the scarlet-coated emissaries of England do today. And today we even have, uh, it isn't an independent free Ireland, uh, it's Ireland under the EU, which is extremely anti-democratic. Economically, it is absolutely dictatorial. It has reduced Ireland to a horrible housing crisis, homelessness crisis, Rough sleeping in Ireland, sleeping outdoors, being homeless, uh, is skyrocketing and has been for years. So that's the source of that. That's the material basis of those problems, right? Um, the privatization of water, the water fees anyway. Um, that's the step before privatization, I guess, you know, charging usage fees and raising the usage fees for water. That was a big, big issue recently. Um, it'll continue to be an issue in the in the near future. We're going to run out of water. Water is going to become extremely expensive very quickly here. But that's exactly what's happened, right? Um, the green-coated Irish soldiers guard the fraudulent gains of capital just as well as the red-coated English soldiers did. On no other basis will the classes unite with you. Do you expect the masses to fight for this ideal? When you talk of freeing Ireland, do you only mean the chemical elements which compose the soil of Ireland, or is it the Irish people you mean? If the latter, from what do you propose to free them? From the rule of England? That's not the real problem. It's not the rule of England. It's the rule of capital, right? That's what he's saying. But all systems of political administration or governmental machinery are but the reflex of the economic forms which underlie them. 
English rule in England. English rule in England. Not our, listen, England, okay, is but the symbol of the fact that English conquerors in the past forced upon this country a property system founded upon spoliation, fraud, and murder. That, as the present-day exercise of the rights of property so originated, involves the continual practice of legalized spoliation and fraud, English rule is found to be the most suitable form of government by which the spoliation can be protected, and an English army the most pliant tool with which to execute judicial murder when the fears of the propertied classes demand it. The socialist who would destroy root and branch the whole brutally materialistic system of civilization which, like the English language, we have adopted as our own, is, I hold, a far more deadly foe to English rule and tutelage than the superficial thinker who imagines it possible to reconcile Irish freedom with those insidious but disastrous forms of economic subjection, landlord tyranny, capitalist fraud, and unclean usury. If you remove the English army tomorrow and hoist your green flag over Dublin Castle, unless you set about the organization of the Socialist Republic, your efforts would be in vain. England would still rule you. She would rule you through her capitalists, through her landlords, through her financiers, through the whole array of commercial and individualist institutions she has planted in this country and watered with the tears of our mothers and the blood of our martyrs. England would still rule you to your ruin, even while your lips offered hypocritical homage at the shrine of that freedom whose cause you had betrayed. Nationalism without socialism, without a reorganization of society on the basis of a broader and more developed form of that common property which underlay the social structure of ancient Erin, is only national recreancy. It would be tantamount to a public declaration that our oppressors had so far succeeded in inoculating us with their perverted conceptions of justice and morality that we had finally decided to accept those conceptions as our own and no longer needed an alien army to force them upon us. As a socialist, I am prepared to do all one man can do to achieve for our motherland her rightful heritage, independence, but if you ask me to abate one jot or tittle of the claims of social justice, socialism, in order to conciliate the privileged classes, then I must decline. Such action would be neither honorable nor feasible. Let us never forget that he never reaches heaven who marches thither in the company of the devil. Let us openly proclaim our faith. The logic of events is with us. That's James Connolly in 1897, Socialism and Nationalism. And today we have these kind of international relations specialists uh, arguing ever so, pushing ever so gently, trying to sow doubts about the policy of neutrality, which it's at least a wonderful thing that Ireland is not a part of NATO, the Nazi fucks. This is a big part of the reason why Ireland can have such good privacy laws, uh, it would be a country that I would recommend VPNing into particularly if you wanted to secure your, your traffic uh, and, and secure your data from unscrupulous uh, collection. You know, illegally all kinds of things happen, we know, from, from seeing AT&T, uh, what they have been doing since 9-11 and all of this. Uh, but anyway, 
there's this attempt even today to link uh, Irish nationalism to the EU and to a kind of liberal imperialism that is making itself felt in Ukraine at the moment. And what is this Ukraine that we are to uh, feel ourselves so connected to? Well, you know, it's a wonderful place and, and wonderful people. Uh, and it has a storied history, but it is it cannot at all be encapsulated in a modern nation-state type narrative, right? As I was just saying, this is the place where slaves from places like Ireland would, would have been brought to be sold into the Islamic world, right? And that is part of the dialectic, uh, the dialectical demonology of white supremacy that I want to talk about today, because... Under the caliphate, Europe was, as it has always been, a a terrible backwater, nothing happening. And that can be nice. That can be nice when nothing is happening from a world historical point of view. You know that in this podcast, we definitely think that uh, when nothing is happening, that's that's just fine usually too. Uh, But if we're looking from the perspective of so-called civilization, which usually means the growth of capital, Europe is not a part of that story. And they have there a tremendous inferiority complex, in a word. If I were to say it in a word, distill it down, there's a tremendous inferiority complex, which you can see really, really well in Spanish uh, martial tales, Spanish, uh, you know, caballerías, chivalric tales, yeah, which are the secret basis of a whole literary genealogy of white supremacy, which passes through Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, for example. It's, it's unique in world history. I do want to say that actually white uh, people do atrocities that are unprecedented uh, in some ways. But at the same time, it has a history. It grows dialectically out of things that happened earlier, and therefore, crucially, it can have an end, and we must bring it to an end. So one of the things that's been happening a lot to uh, those unfortunate enough to be defined as Eastern, to be defined as Oriental in Ukraine today, because of course, you know, one layer of what we have in Ukraine is the policies beginning with Lenin of really sort of affirmative action, right? There's There's a scholarly book, Affirmative Action Empire, There is a book, I think, Empire of Nations, uh, which talk about the USSR as really one of the first exercises in affirmative action in encouraging national identity as part of socialist construction, right? And that's something that can be debated, but, uh, and Stalin's Marxism and the National Question would be a, a great place to start. There's a lot to be said. There's a lot to be said. You know, that's not a question that is settled for me at all. But what happened is that Ukraine, which never had really a a national identity in any kind of modern sense, uh, it had always been a borderland. That's what the word Ukraine means, borderland. And it was always, you know, Mongols and and Tartars and, uh, right, Persians. Different empires are always reaching in and then ebbing and flowing, you know, into this region and then falling away and sending colonists in and then pulling, deporting them out, right? It's happened to my ancestors as well. So uh, 
you know, that's the region that it is. And then under the USSR, though, under the Soviet Union, it was sort of forged into a national identity. Uh, and then the Eastern Front, this is a huge, huge point. Everyone learn about the Eastern Front in World War II. Uh, the Western Front is all that we hear about in Anglo-American propaganda, but that is not where the war was fought. This, the core of World War II is the world revolution as represented by the Soviet Union at that moment against the skirts, you know, as capital had scurried under the skirts of reaction, as Engels says in the one quote about, uh, about civic freedoms, right? If, if the bourgeoisie were to scurry under the skirts of reaction and abandon bourgeois civil society and bourgeois democracy, uh, he was saying right there, then we should still fight for civic freedom, right? Because we need it for the workers' struggle. That's light and air to the proletariat and so on. Well, in the fascist era, fascism was the, um, the force, right? Not, not quite the old forces of uh, monarchy, although fascism is deeply tied to monarchialism, right? You see, Francoist fascism is a bit more openly monarchist. Uh, you see the white Russians are a bit more openly monarchist, but they were working hand in glove with the Nazis and they're, you know, the Okhrana, um, the Russian secret uh, police, the Okhrana, whose archives ended up in Langley, Virginia. Why would that be? <laughs> well, that's because after the Russian Revolution, the Okhrana was absorbed into Anglo-American and German intelligence networks. And then every, all of that ended up in the CIA after the war under the Fourth Reich. And that's where not only the Okhrana, but the SS as well get absorbed in and trained and used and developed uh, both individually and as groups and as ideologies. We have the Fourth Reich in Japan. We have a kind of Fourth Reich, right, uh, in the, from the Cuban Revolution, right? The assassination of JFK, obviously. You have uh, George de Mornschild was a white Russian who basically shepherded Lee Harvey Oswald into his role as a patsy, and then later he was sort of left hung out to dry uh, by George H.W. Bush right after he became the director of the CIA, isn't it? So, uh, and they have similar networks, right, of sort of defeated fascists, uh, some of them defeated by the United States officially. Like here in Japan, you find uh, at the head of organizations like WACL, the World Anti-Communist League, Sasakawa Ryoichi, Kishinobusuke, Kodama Yoshio, the anti-communist uprising in Hungary, uh, for which the Soviets sending in the tanks is the source of the appellation tanky for people who support actually existing socialism, right? The people who fomented that uprising were basically just like those exiled Cubans. They were cultivated by the Galen organization, Reinhard Galen, right? We have Otto Skorzeny, from the, the Nazis, uh, buying a farm in Ireland and riding his tractor around in Ireland, isn't it? That, that's often minimized, but he spent some time on the run in Ireland, didn't he? Uh, and then you also have Klaus Barbie, who ends up down in Bolivia. You have Paul Schaefer at uh, Colonia Dignidad in Chile, which becomes a major uh, center for all kinds of stuff. 
There's all kinds of, so the, that's the whole spider network, right? Uh, but back in World War II, right? Back in World War II, on the Eastern Front, that's the context for these Azov people. That's where their worldview comes from. That's what their grandmas and grandpas were up to, right? And all over Japanese social media as well, you know, you get, oh, such and such an old grandma in Ukraine is telling the story of all the horrible things that the Soviet Russians did, those communists coming in, doing all these horrible things. You always have to ask your grandmother, your grandfather, which side did they fight on in the Great War? If they were fighting against the Russians, that means they were fighting with the Nazis. And the more you turn over that rock, the more you're going to find things uh, that will reveal the real situation to you and to anyone else who's watching or listening. But so the real fight is on the Eastern Front. And for this, uh, a great education for me was to the documentary Einsatzgruppen, E-I-N-S-A-T-Z, uh, G-R-U-P-P-E-N. It's on Netflix, or it was, and it's a French documentary, and it talks about the Eastern Front. And as the Nazis were advancing, the Red Army was retreating, and the moment they would retreat, the fascists in these areas, uh, which there were, the Ukrainian people, I think 80% of eligible people fought in the Red Army and, and fought heroically. Okay, but there was a minority who formed SS divisions, most notoriously the Galician SS, um, from whom Azov Battalion directly draws its lineage. These people are literally the grandsons and granddaughters, in many cases, of SS fighters from the Eastern Front. And these people in the Galician SS uh, just horrified even the SS the German SS, they, they, even they said, you're kind of overdoing it there, lads, right? <laughs> and then they ended up uh, safely giving safe passage to become settlers in places like Canada. And their grandchildren uh, become like the Canadian finance minister. I, her name's not coming to me at the moment, but she has written just outright racialist Nazi books about Ukraine, talking about, you know, are we... The people there are just beaten into oriental submission by their oriental despots under the Soviet Union. And we're going to have to just revolutionize and create a whole new humanity there in Ukraine in order to uh, regain our identity. Isn't that interesting? You know, I mean, there, it's, the mo it's in some ways the most perfect case of fascism in its atavistic tendencies, right? Trying to go back to a past that never really existed. And in Ukraine's case, you know, it's so clear that it never existed. And they even admit it. Like this, uh, her name is Krista Friedland or something, isn't it? Christia, maybe? And uh, yeah, she just admits there's no, uh, the, the people in Ukraine are actually not my racial, my pure racial ideal, but we have to actually make our pure racial ideal out of them, right? We are creating something that never existed in the past but it at the same time no it's kind of like somehow kind of ancient um tulian tulian tula ideal right and it comes this is a dialectic you can see how this echoes across a divide it's echoing back and forth and it's growing from this conversation right and it begins with these moments when uh, various European peoples are in a, very so a certain kind of very subordinate relationship to Islamic-dominated capital networks, 
right? And uh, you can see that all in Spanish literature as well. Uh, so I was going to talk, yeah, the, the image that we've, that we've seen of people uh, being attacked with Zelyanka die, Zelyanka attack is the, is the name for it. It's a particular kind of industrial dye that is not water-soluble at all, and so it is very hard to get out, and it can cause permanent vision loss as well if it gets in your eyes. But it began, I think, actually in Russia, various factions attacking each other with this Zelyanka dye. But in Ukraine, among these people who, uh, since the 2014 coup, have been being sharpened and whipped up into a frenzy, into a, a fascist frenzy by American deep state forces that are there. And we see every day new proof of biolabs. Oh my God, the, the Hunter Biden laptop. I, I thought that I had gotten the inside story on that when I listened to the Truanon uh, special episode, you know, extra, extra, right before the election. And they were the only people. Twitter was censoring even private messages, even direct messages about the Hunter Biden laptop were getting erased immediately in the way that they tell you only happens in places like China, right? Well, uh, that was just an amazing open display of censorship. Of course, we hadn't seen nothing yet, but at that time, right, I listened to True and I, and I, you know, I don't know if my memory is not, and I'm not, I don't have time to go back and listen to it again, so I apologize if I'm wrong. What I remember is learning about how Hunter had set up a deal between the Chinese and the Ukrainians to learn Russian jet engine making technology uh, that they couldn't get otherwise. And then after the deal is done, he goes back to his hotel room and they've got sex workers waiting for him and he's doing every kind of drug under the sun and getting them to wank him off with their feet or whatever. And uh, now though, I think this is not also not just a random coincidence, though. Uh, I saw on my feed on... I don't know if this is because I'm straddling a divide that I'm not supposed to straddle by being critical of certain aspects of the COVID narrative, right? And that is get, now they're giving me some of the stuff that only right-wingers are supposed to hear. And right-wingers are... And I think they strategically... I mean, they brag about this. They brag, you know, PSYOP, PSY war, right? There's a whole psychological warfare division um, in many different organizations. Uh, and they openly brag about having full spectrum dominance. That means whatever brand of media that you seek out, there will be, they have their version that they want you to hear, you know? And they make sure that that, it becomes the dominant version of that brand, right? If you're a punk, if you're a goth, if you're a hippie, right, you're going to get the particular thing that they want. And they'll even teach you like a part in a dance where you do si do and seesaw ho and whatever the hell. And uh, that interlocks with the particular kind of um, grab your partner round and round uh, that is happening that the hippies are doing over there and they're going to interact with you in a certain way. And that dance is, is what they wanted. It's choreographed in a certain way, right? That A and that B... That's what they wanted to be clashing at that moment in order to distract from C and D, which were the, was the real conflict that was happening. Yeah. 
ヘアハホイオヘニコマナオハエノホイハエノホイ So now, I mean, basically, I think now Biden is, they're done with Biden and they're going to kill him off,、um, either metaphorically or literally, I don't know. But at least in a kind of writerly sense, in the screenwriterly sense, they're going to kill off Biden. And this is one way of doing it, is letting this all out now,、uh, or at least letting it out to the point that I see it. So now there's all this stuff about how Hunter took loads of money to help them set up these bio labs. For creating viruses that target、uh, you know, particularly Ukrainian people. And then there was all this talk about Russia's g o i n g to do a false flag and pretend it, it's really, yeah, it's unclear. you know, Even in the run up to World War II, of course, there was all kinds of false information that both sides or all sides、uh, were letting out to fool this side into thinking this and that. you know, Are they going to go north? Are they going to go south? Are they going to go east? Are they going to go west? Are they going to throw rock, paper, scissors? All of this. Well, but in, at any rate, it's clear that Hunter was involved in helping set up these bio labs, making bio weapons. You know, there's no great, you, know, you, can, you can, the liberal debunker take on that would be、uh, oh, it's just a bio lab. They're just studying viruses to prevent diseases, being, you know,、uh, American military officials in a completely foreign country in a military base. Sure, that's all they're doing, right? I mean, it's just as with nuclear materials, right?、Uh, the production of nuclear weapons is inseparable. Well, production of nuclear energy is inseparable from the production of nuclear weapons, right? The byproducts of nuclear energy are what you need to create nuclear bombs. Right? So that, I mean, that would factor into sort of Japanese politics in, in various times too, right? So, Hunter, and not only that,、uh, I saw a picture, and I, you know, you don't, you can't even really circulate it, but there is a picture.、Um, there are many, many pictures that he had of his niece, right? So, his brother, Bo,、uh, gets some kind of cancer because he was. Probably because he was in Iraq in an area that was getting、uh, depleted uranium munitions used in it and it was got all radioactive and shit. And so he dies.、Um, the, the good son, right? That, that Joe Biden wanted to be his, his heir, really. And、uh, Hunter then、uh, seduces his widow and turns her into a cocaine addict. And then there are text messages between him and. The widow, right, of his brother,、um, saying, You know, you can't, if you're going to talk to my therapist, I want to be there because last time you told him that I was sexually inappropriate with Natalie, who is her daughter, right, with Bo. That's his niece. And his laptop, lo and behold, has loads of pictures of her,、um, very suggestive kind of pictures running all the way up to. You know, from what has been released,、uh, the most suggestive thing that's been released, she has no, nothing on, on the bottom at all. And, you know, you can't see any private parts. She's not like facing,、um, she's facing forward toward the camera. And she has cocaine on her nose. So this is a moment of abuse, you know, and it's like you can't, you can't kind of show people this. You can't kind of just like send it around. It came across my feed. 
But uh, that exists. That's what we're talking about here. That's the kind of character we're talking about. It's he's not some kind of lovable rapscallion, like they've been. Even the dirtbag left has been treating him like some kind of lovable guy. Uh, no, no, this is serious trouble here. This guy, and he reveals very, very dark stuff about even the present moment in Ukraine. Wow. So, uh, all of which is to say, you know, to talk about, the, I was talking about those Zelyanka die attacks, right? The face. Um, and part one story in Ukraine now that is that that is about, um, they are calling them orcs, calling them orcs, which this is supposed to be a term from the Lord of the Rings. This is how it's known today as from the Lord of the Rings. And I did a little, you know, J.R.R. Tolkien, a uh, friend of C.S. Lewis, who wrote the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe series, right? The Narnia, Chronicles of Narnia. Well, so I uncovered something really interesting about that too, which is that his work, the, the Tolkien stuff, it is always credited. All the mythological inspiration is always reduced to Beowulf. He was a Beowulf scholar, and the word orc appears in Beowulf as well. But much, much more of a governing influence on the whole Lord of the Rings thing. If you read these Spanish Knights Chronicles, Knights Tales, you see it all right there. That's what it is. And that's also what Star Wars is, by the way. I really think that this stuff being the the really rocket fuel that fueled white supremacy and that fueled Spanish and Portuguese imperialism, and then it goes, it transfers back to England as well, as the British Empire is getting going, or the foundations, the mercantile foundations for it. You know, you have like Anthony Monday translating these Spanish romances into English and publishing them in English and inspiring whole generations of English fail sons and ne'er do wells and chancers to go abroad and uh, lay the mercantile foundations for the British Empire. And that was not lost on later generations of clerics, shall we say, different kinds of clerics, right? And I think C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien can even be read as as a certain kind of cleric, right? Even C.S. Lewis's whole version of vision of Christianity, he he talks about the Blitz, you know, our world is like the Blitz, we're like London under the Blitz, and... You know, when we pray, we're listening to, into the secret wireless from our friends and all of this. Well, right, a big thing of what the Lord of the Rings does is it takes this ever-present motif of Byzantium and Constantinople, going and saving the old city. We we, we live on the wild frontier. We live in the, the middle of nowhere. We're just, you know, the remnants of the uh, periphery of a dead civilization uh, which is good, but it's dead, and there's an evil, evil civilization which is coming, and the monsters and the orcs are coming, right? And they serve literally the devil, right? And we human beings, um, which are equivalent to Christians, right? In the Spanish Chronicles, it's usually more of like giants, in general, are the, are the bad guys, right? Tolkien kind of turns all the bad guys more monstrous and black and, and 
more evil looking. Uh, and that's a progression that you can see in English literature before that too, I think. But that's perhaps why the orcs in Tolkien are green now, and it becomes much more, at least, fantasy illustrations, right? They become green or blue or whatever. Uh, and on the one hand, that would be reflect a kind of sanitization of the thing, of the genre, whereas, you know, in, in Spain, they're black. You'll, you'll see uh, the bad guys, right? Is blackness is the, the mark of the demonic quality of the bad guys, right? Whereas then putting it green, making it blue, that makes it, oh, this isn't now, this isn't white supremacist. This isn't the core literature of white supremacy as it's being born. Uh, this isn't a triumphalist Christian uh, crusader kind of fantasy. No, this is, is, it's just green. They're just, you know, some other race, some other ma imaginary shit, you know, don't worry. Don't worry about it. But then on the other hand, actually, uh, I, I only know about Irish, but in, in Irish, right, Dina Gorum means uh, a blue, blue people, right? Blue people actually is the way that you say black people in Irish. Uh, this causes some problems translating ideas like Black Lives Matter. Uh, you know, in Black Lives Matter, if you make it blue, blue lives matter, then that's actually no. In America, that blue lives matter is the opposite of Black Lives Matter, uh, right? Uh, but yeah, we don't say uh, black people, we say blue people. Um, so, but even then too, uh, then you still have, uh, in fact, the blueness and being pathologized. If there is any of that in these Slavic languages, I don't know. Uh, but if there was, then it's yet another, it connects you right into that heritage of white supremacy and anti-blackness that we see dialectically forming here, and which we see that we have the opportunity to unform and unmake. Uh, but anyway, you can get a picture of these kind of networks that form the intelligence agencies much later. Uh, you can trace it all the way back to these companies that are funding these expeditions to go and rape and pillage and cheat and steal and bring back all of this value from pillaging the African continent and the Americas and, uh, right, and then all, later on, uh, many parts of the rest of the world. But they have a literary strategy all along. They do literary activism, and they also have clerics like Bernard of Clairvaux, uh, even calling in the Crusades. The Crusades is really when this starts getting going, right? And the work that I'm going to do, read a little bit of a, an excerpt from today, climactic kind of moment from today, is uh, Amadis de Gaula. That doesn't mean in, in uh, Ireland, Gaul means, uh, you know, cunt means, you know, like a, a guy, like a, a gas cunt would be a, a, fun, a funny guy or a fun guy, a nice, a cool guy, right? It's not really such a bad word, but uh, gaul uh, is, would be more like, you know, calling someone female genitalia in, a, in kind of a bad way. Um, so, but Amadis de Gaula means Amadis of Gaul, like France. Uh, but uh, yeah, this is existed in some form in the 15th century uh, and then it is it is rewritten by um, Garthi Rodriguez de Montalvo in the first years of the 16th century so around 1500 15 aughts you know and together with so there are three books he adds a fourth book and then also adds a sequel called Las Sergas de Esplandian from which I read for the White Devils episode earlier this podcast uh, and I may get to again you know I mean, there's so much to talk about there uh, but basically just Lord of the Rings comes from this 
it really comes from this. Uh, this is a big point I want to make. Uh, even in Spanish, you know, I've just looking around Wikipedia, the all the articles for Orcos um, say this comes from Tolkien, even though. So there's Ludovico Ariosto, the Italian, also has an important epic poem called Orlando Furioso, uh, which is about kind of knights in shining armor fighting semi-monstrous uh, Islamic uh, enemies, right? They're not as monstrous in, in uh, Orlando Furioso. But, uh, you know, that has different sequels and, and different things. In the 16th century, you have Las Lagrimas de Angelica, the tears of Angelica, who Angelica is the, the queen of China. And, like, Orlando goes to woo the queen of China. Um, Orlando Furioso is largely about, like, driving the Agramante, the evil king Agramante, who's a black Moorish African king who has violently uh, conquered all of Europe. He's conquered all of Europe and we have to drive him out. You know, talk about a, a persecution complex, right? Uh, this literature is largely serving to create an enormous persecution complex or to inflame it, to inflame it and to direct it outward. Uh, you know, this you can connect this right down to... Uh, there was a tweet that didn't mean to illuminate this, but it really illuminated for me about Coney 2012. The Coney 2012 campaign. Uh, isn't that wild? You know, some guy started a, a viral meme and it almost resulted in military intervention until he was caught uh, masturbating on a car in public. I remember that video and I don't know that he was like on a car. He wasn't like riding a car in a sexual way. He was just out in public, um, stark naked as I recall. But I realized, oh, that was the kill switch on that, that little test. I think it was a test to see how riled up, how can we use liberal sentiments to get people riled up for war? This peop these people over there, they're violating human rights. They're violating human rights, folks. You know, I just did that in an Alex Jones voice off the cuff for some reason, but uh, that is apropos because it's, a kind of, it's the same energy. It is the same energy. Um, there's a kind of conspiracism um, I said earlier, I realized what Gnosticism is. I realized what Gnosticism is. And it is what the real definition of it is when you just know, right? Gnosis means to know in Greek. And it's a response to a very hopeless political situation, such as, you know, at the end of the Roman Empire, which is interesting. You know, I mean, in some ways, you know, you could have felt uh, good about the collapse of the Roman Empire, but in some ways people felt sort of bad, you know, we're entering a dark age and so on. You know, people, the kind of scribes that would write this down would, would felt this way anyway. And they felt, oh, the world is lost and it's a horribly bad place just in, very inherently, but I know it, but I know it, right? I mean, that's the key move, the key characteristic of Gnosticism. And so for me, you know, the different worlds I sort of have one foot in, right? Like conspiracy, so-called left, um, particularly like Christian socialists, perhaps. They use words like hermetic and Gnostic kind of interchangeably to just mean, you know, like anything, you know, antinomian would be the technical term. Things like we are, we're going to do evil, right, and embrace doing evil uh, in the way that some actual spiritual movements among the proto-bourgeoisie and the bourgeoisie, bourgeoisie seem to really have, right? These are things that there's something behind that. 
But that's not real, what these words really mean if you actually read the late antique documents or the Christian New Testament, which uh, some folks don't seem to know as well as, as they know their early modern occultists, which is, uh, you might want to check on that. You know, hermeticism is like logos, like, like word magic, like words have some connection to ultimate reality and ideas themselves. I mean, it's semi-Platonic, and then it's connected to kind of at least quasi-Egyptian ideas, right? Um, well, gnosis is about like knowing, you know, that there's problems everywhere. Um, there's nothing we can do, and, there's no, and you shouldn't try to do anything about it, but you just know about it. Right. And maybe your soul, sort of disembodied soul, rises through the spheres in some way. And that's meaningful, but it's interior or something, or it's it's somehow, you know, ethereal. It doesn't happen in the real world. Right. Uh, if you're going to critique Gnosticism, that's where you should critique it, I think. That's where I would say, you know, this is not good. Um, some of the things I do like about Gnostic texts, I've, I'm realizing as I read a little bit more properly, is that they go beyond and critique Abrahamic monarchism and they critique patriarchy, right? They refer to God as like patromator, mater, or you know, it's, it's kind of Coptic. Um, so they get vowels wrong and stuff, but it's my, it should be mater, but, um, or maybe it's metropator. I forget. There's words like this, right? Father, mother, mother, father, uh, referring to God and also the kingless generation. I, I like that phrase because um, usually, and I've been educated, you know, I'm learning more. Um, Islam also does not allow for, I mean, this is something that we kind of got into the other day about sort of, you can't really hold up um, jinn or something or, or, you know, Satan as some kind of enemy to God in Islam. You know, there's no... Even a jinn, even a, a, a devil, is, can only be a tool of Allah. It can only be a tool of Allah. And I think that's the hope, actually, that I want to bring here. When we talk about a dialectical demonology of, of whiteness, it can only be a tool of Allah. It can, in the end, at the end of the day, it can only be a tool, and he will use it as a tool to do good things. And it's going to come around there in some kind of way, right? And in that sense, you know, maybe I would embrace a kind of like uh, Spanish chivalric novel or Tolkienian critique of the the languishing, tired old king. This is a big image in book three of the Lord of the Rings, Return of the King. Uh, they finally get to the old capital, which, uh, you know, Amadis, Esplandian, and there's any number of other ones, um, you know, Floricel de Nicaea, you know. Floricel of Nicaea, out in um, Asia Minor, is where he's from, apparently. There's all this kind of imaginary, kind of quasi-historical, quasi-ancient past of all these knights coming from all over the European world. And they're always trying to get to Constantinople and defend it against some kind of monstrous, superhuman, demonic army. Or something, right? And that's exactly what happens in the Lord of the Rings. They get to and they get to the capital city, and the king is just despairing, and he's just, oh, the bad guys have totally won. You know, can't possibly hope to. It's just like tired old civilization. Uh, but we are the new energetic civilization. We've come from the fringes in the middle of nowhere, but we're going to come in and take over. And 
um, make it better. And we have this kind of, uh, this is the root of the frontier spirit, the pioneer spirit, all of this stuff too. Settler colonialism has roots there in um, the Reconquista as well. And then also the Crusaders, right? Uh, there's a there's an infamous moment. One of the the great heroes of the first crusade, right? And the crusades themselves are fantastic, interesting story to get into. By the time you get to the fourth crusade, they are so focused on profit and on plugging into mer- merchant networks that they uh, don't even they try to go maybe to to conquer some Muslim held cities. Jerusalem, maybe Alexandria, uh, but then no, they're just going to go to um, Byzantium. They actually go and sack Constantinople itself. They sack Constantinople and take all kinds of loot from there. Um, so, but even the first, right? Bohemond was one of the great heroes of those um, chronicles. Anyway, is it Gestae Francorum, the chronicle of the First Crusade? Bohemond gets to Antioch and, you know, this great trading city, and he gets control of Antioch, and he just says, oh, I'm just going to stay here, you know, fuck Jerusalem. He doesn't even care. He doesn't even go to Jerusalem. You know, he's the big hero of the whole expedition, but actually he doesn't, he just gets satisfied with uh, trading and getting rich on the Silk Road connections in Antioch. He's getting his beak wet. He's getting some of that, he's getting in there. And uh, (laughs) that's how that works. Again and again and again, we see that same thing. The Christians are getting into, they're getting hooked on the capital. They're getting hooked on the the trading and the drug networks and all this stuff, right? And they take it over bit by bit. And that's how they get going. That's how they get going. And and this mad sort of inferiority complex uh, transforms into a, this tremendous superiority complex, right? This is very dialectical movement. Things turn into their opposites. Uh, a, a proposition contains its opposite within it, right? Uh, we are these little people uh, valiantly fighting on the side of God against these monstrous, enormous giants who are all over the world, and, and they are in control of everything, but we, you know, we on the fringes, are trying to go and save the old holy city and recover Las Islas, right? The, the islands, recover the islands that are lost to the emperor of Rome. Uh, long ago, the emperor of Rome lost this island and uh, we're, we're here to get it back. And that brings me to this one uh, real climactic chapter from book three of Amadis of Gaul. It's chapter 73, and this is where he comes to the island. It's, it's how the noble knight of the green sword, this is an epithet of Amadis at this moment, because uh, he has a green sword right then. Uh, After leaving Gracinda to go to Constantinople, was so constrained by ill fortune while at sea as to be carried to the island of the devil, where he found a fierce beast called the Endriago, and finally achieved victory over it. So... He's getting to this island, and he learns, oh, it's, it's called uh, the Devil's Isle, and it used to belong to the Emperor of Rome, but it was lost long ago. It was taken over by a giant named Bandagido. 
who was his lord, and, and he was married to a gentle giantess of good family. And for all the molestation and cruelty that the husband with his wickedness perpetrated on the Christians by killing and destroying them, she, the wife, out of pity, she's a giantess uh, wife, out of pity made amends every time she could. That's an interesting, um, so the Christians, right, the Christians are just like the regular humans in this, in this version. And you can see in the captivity narratives of Cervantes, he has uh, plays, right? He has dramas that are about characters in captivity, uh, including the great Sultana, which is uh, based on a historical uh, Sultana who was a Christian from Spain who married a powerful uh, Turkish ruler, right? And then she was able to influence him and, and be sort of merciful, uh, you know, get a good deal sometimes, get a good deal for the Christians, um, which you can see even in this literature, like the, the Christians in Muslim countries were treated um, nothing like the kind of genocidal rage that they come to be treated with in post-Reconquista Spain. Although even in early Reconquista Spain, there's all kinds of interesting documents actually that show a kind of liberalism at first, kind of like we are going to be, you know, tolerant at first and oh you just need to we'll have no more books printed in arabic but for a, a certain amount of time we can have still marriage contracts in arabic that are still there though those will still be recognized but let's have those copied over into spanish and so on right and everyone has to you do have to convert to christianity and we make sure you know this much and there's arguments about do we have to change dress and so on well and there's all kinds of at first pointing out like the Spanish didn't have to change their dress when they would live in like Algeria, right? One of the plays uh, of Cervantes is um, Baños of Algiers, which dramatizes the situation of the Christians living there. Uh, Cervantes himself had, had gone and been captured for a while. Um, and there's a lot of his characters are spies who go and deliberately get captured and then go to try to arrange the release of Christian captives and so on, right? And again, dialectically, this kind of inferiority complex gets morphed into anti-blackness as well. You know, this is part of the kind of revenge, you know, can say sometimes there's a saying, uh, hurt people hurt people. Uh, so this would be a very crude way of talking about this, but, you know, there was uh, living on the periphery of this big capital network of the Islamic world, did result in some traumas that were then turned into white supremacy and anti-blackness in these ways. Yeah, I mean, it's not to excuse them in any way, but just looking at it historically and dialectically, we can see that it echoes down, it grows uh, into something uh, really monstrous, right? Wer mit Lügen und Schmutz sich verbindet, wer das Volk um den Frieden bestiehlt, wer die Fackeln des Krieges entzündet, hat sein eigenes Leben verspielt. An der Moskwa, an der Weichsel, an der Moldau, an der Spree, stehen Waffen, Brüder, Genossen von des friedenstarken Volks. Amen. But here, the, this uh, giant has taken over this, this uh, island, and then we have this weird kind of like um, Rosemary's Baby moment here. You'll... you'll I think some of my listeners will really 
be interested to see uh, one of the places where that sort of narrative actually comes from is this as well. It's this as well. The daughter of this king uh, falls in love with the father and the father kind of falls in love with her and he, she kills her mother. She kills her mother and marries her father and then the idols that they worship, the idols that they worship tell them that day um, publicly before everyone, he took as his wife his daughter Bandagida in whom on that unfortunate night by order of the devils in whom she and her father and husband believed was engendered an animal in the form that you shall now hear. Um, an animal, so the original is, um, right, y luego ese día públicamente ante todos tomó por mujer a su hija Bandagida en la cual aquella malaventurada noche in that badly uh, turned out night, um, like cursed night, uh, fue engendrado una animalia, an animalia. That was the same word used for the, the bestiary that the queen of California rode on in Esplandian. So just some kind of mythical beast. Uh, por ordenanza de los diablos en quienes ella y su padre y marido creían. Right? Uh, so then... He is, they, they engender this horrible monster by having incestuous relations and it creates demonic power in them. And so um, think about how that, that sort of narrative has dialectically grown over the ages and been sort of used in different ways, um, right? And uh, they, the description of this beast is amazing. Um, I'll give you, so we got to get into that, I think. Uh, because there you get, this is the origin of the orc and stuff. Literally, the orcus, orcus is um, Latin for like the underworld itself or the king of the underworld or the minions of the king of the underworld, right? And that word is used for many kinds of monsters. Um, oh, I brought up, yeah, Las Lagrimas de Angelica, which has not been translated into English. So I would have to do it to talk about it. Um, but uh but in that book, too, there's bad guys called orcos, okay? And, uh, yeah, there's an orco. So it's, it's all over the place, all right? But nobody knows it. It's really hidden that this literature is the source of that. Um, I think it's largely, you know, it's sort of very... People are embarrassed to maybe talk too much about it sometimes. And maybe the only sorts of people who get excited about this literature tend to be sort of like... Like there's this one court scholar for Franco, the dictator in Spain, whose specialty was the Song of the Cid. And he had this whole reading of the Song of the Cid as like the heart and soul of Spanish culture, right? Taking back the, the land from the Muslim invaders, right? Well, so that keeps, it limits only certain people ever look at it right? I think that's another theme of this podcast, right? There's things that only certain people ever look at. Um, that one, another thing they were making fun of in that one episode of uh, Seriously Wrong, that anarchist podcast that had David Wengrow on and they were making fun of the whole idea of uh, dialectical materialism, you know, just being like, oh, people ate too much fish and that's why they have to become dictators or something. 
Another thing that they were making fun of was like they had this kind of quasi right wing conspiracy theorist uh, character bit that they were doing. And and one of the things they kept talking about, Joe Biden's laptop, Joe Biden's laptop, Joe Biden's laptop. You know, so in their minds, like that's something that only right wingers talk about, you know, and I don't know. Um, Kind of interesting, as we've already seen, like there's a whole lot in, in there that anyone would want to talk, know about, especially someone who was trying to think about how to really get change in relations of production and how to really get to a stateless, classless society that an anarchist would, would really want, right? So the back to the Endriago. And we get here a real association of blackness with demonic nature. It had its body and face covered with hair, and all over its body it had overlapping horny scales, so resistant that no weapon could pierce them, and its legs and feet were very big and strong, and on its shoulders it had wings so large that they covered it down to the feet, and they were not feathered, but with a gleaming, hairy, leather-like hide as black as pitch, so impenetrable that no weapons could hurt it. With those wings it covered itself as a man does with a shield." and from under them there extended very strong arms, just like a lion's paws, all covered with horny scales, smaller than those of its torso, and each of its hands had the shape of an eagle's, with the claws of its five fingers so strong and so large that nowhere could there be anything strong enough, once within its grasp, to escape from being crushed immediately. It had two teeth in each one of its jaws, so strong and so long that they protruded from its mouth a cubit's length, and its eyes were big and round, very red like live coals, so that from a long distance, when it was dark, they were visible and all the people fled from it. That description, too, is probably worth uh, hearing in Spanish a little bit. Y encima de los hombros había alas tan grandes que hasta los pies le cubrían, y no de plumas, más de un cuero negro como la pez, pez being uh, not fish but pitch, right, pitch black, luciente, belloso, tan fuerte que ninguna arma las podía empecer, con las cuales se cubría como lo hiciese un hombre con un escudo. Dientes tenía dos en cada una de las quijadas, tan fuertes y tan largos que de la boca un codo le salían, y los ojos grandes y redondos, muy bermejos como brasas, así que de muy lejos, siendo de noche, eran vistos y todas las gentes huían de él. So very colorful language, right? Negro for the skin and bermejo. Uh, vermilion, bright red, blood red, eyes which shine in the night. So it kills its parents, and actually the whole island becomes deserted. And uh, we get uh, these scenes of the, the idols, right, talking about how to, f- how to raise it and stuff. Uh, this trope of talking idols is something that comes from Muslim depictions of India. There's an, a Muslim idea that these idols, they have idols in India that actually talk back to you when you pray to them. Right? And this is part of like what idolatry is for them. And that has been taken over uh, by Christendom, right? Western, Western Christendom in a certain kind of dialectically distorted way. These distortions um, are what we want to be following here, right? So, yeah, Amadis defeats the Endriago, and his defeating of that uh, really becomes like the spiritual, it's almost like the, the spiritual 
prelude to his saving Constantinople, which he's just on his way to do. Right at first, we actually get the demonic powers actually enter the Andriago themselves in a new way. Like maybe he doesn't quite himself perfectly uh, embody demonic forces, but they come and possess him when he's about to fight Amadis. And they're able, it's interesting, he's able to do that because Amadis's faith is, is kind of weak and he's too much thinking about his lady Oriana more than God. So uh, you can see that uh, being too, uh, too much of a wife guy is uh, not such a good thing here, just as it was with the, you know, the samurai in uh, Chushingura, right? Remember that his sin was being thinking of his, his wife too much, right? Um, his feudal connections, his loyalty, his duty, right? This is what he should be thinking about much more than that, right? Even if, if uh, romance is, is very much aestheticized here. And here, too, we may see Garthi Rodriguez de Montalvo updating this and Christianizing further, things that maybe date back into sort of some pre-Christian things and some more kind of just feudal aspects of culture that this new kind of era of crusade and reconquista, the, end, the introduction to Amadis is all talking about the reconquista. The Catholic monarchs have taken back right, Granada and, and now finally the Reconquista is over, and I have uh, reworked these books that existed, and then I also found a fourth volume that was hidden in a cave under a monastery near Constantinople, where else, right? So it's like very Lord of the Rings, like very much, oh, some hidden book that's from the earlier age before things were fallen, and we find, you know... Um, Gandalf knows about it. Merlin knows about it, right? And Amadis has these guides that are kind of like very much like Merlin and Gandalf. And th this description of the engendering of the Endriago is in the mouth of a doctor who is, is telling him this. So it was not long before they saw the Endriago coming out from among the rocks, much fiercer and stronger than it ever had been. The cause of which was that, as the devils saw, that this knight was relying more on his mistress Oriana than on God, they had an opportunity to enter into it more powerfully and to render it more furious. And they were saying, if we save him from this man, there is no other in the world so daring or so strong as to venture to attack such a creature. And when he finally defeats it, uh, we see actually the devil coming out, right? I want you to know that before dawn broke, the devil came out of its mouth and went through the air with a very great thunderclap so that those who were in the castle heard it as clearly as if it had been beside them. Uh, the rest of Amadis's party is kind of hiding out in a ruined old castle, the old castle of the Andriago's parents, right, on the deserted island now. So he, you know, that's so much for uh, the Endriago. Uh, but we see just a very, very similar description of the engendering of the savage figure in Shakespeare's The Tempest, right? Uh, his mother was a witch and his father was the devil. Uh, that is very much this legend transmuted into England at the time when the foundations for the British Empire are just being laid. Um, once again, dialectical demonology here, right? And it has to do with demonizing others, valorizing yourself, and this echoes back and forth, this violence of 
demonizing uh, gives birth to, to real demons, folks, I would say. So this is why Azov are turning the faces of the ordinary citizens that they see, that they hate, and they want to make the object of their pogroms. Uh, they're turning their faces green to, ma- to match this Lord of the Rings. I think it comes from like the movies of Lord of the Rings and stuff and the, the kind of modern bestiary of that kind of fantasy genre. Uh, but it has its roots very firmly actually in the knight's tales that gave birth to the Spanish, Portuguese, and British empires, okay? And arguably later on were repurposed by people like Tolkien, by in things like the Urantia book, by people like George Lucas. You know, in Tolkien, uh, very much the, the Eastern evil enemy is Nazi Germany and also the Soviet Union, and in the post-war, that's, that is how people read it. And I think they're meant to read it that way. But you will know if you watch Einsatzgruppen, you'll know, uh, you know, it's a very even-handed thing. They go out of their way in every episode. It's, you know, has many episodes. It's harrowing watching. Uh, but you gotta see it uh, to, to learn the truth here of World War II on the Eastern Front. What was really going on there? You know, you have very, very heroic people who were fighting the dialectical demonology of whiteness, of the fetishization of the West, of the hatred of the Orient, the hatred of the East, the hatred of color, people of color. It's all there. And they go out of their way to show every little mistake that the Red Army ever made. Every time that they accidentally killed the wrong person, uh, you know, or two or three they, they discuss the Katyn massacre as uh, something that the Red Army did, uh, even though there's lots of archaeological evidence to suggest that it was, like many other places, are confirmed to have been a Nazi crime scene that was doctored to look like a Red Army, like the Red Army did it. Uh, and they get into that, right? As the Red Army is retreating, the Einsatzgruppen come in and they find people like the ancestors of the Azov Battalion uh, lining up Jews, lining up uh, Roma people and uh, killing them with whatever means they had. And they industrialized these methods. Uh, They didn't have gas chambers out there on the Eastern Front, but they would give them uh, machine guns and a bottle of vodka and just they would have them kill a thousand people a day line them up, uh, stack them like cordwood, and then shoot down into the pile of bodies, walk along the pile of bodies, shoot, shoot, shoot. Just horrible stuff. And then at the end of the war, when they know they're losing, they come back and they have conscripted uh, laborers who are Jewish or Roma or any number of um, minority ethnicities there. And they're forcing them to dig up all those bodies and put them in the wood chipper and do the whole do a Fargo kind of cleanup uh, scene there and and try to get rid of the evidence or doctor it to make it look like a Soviet crime, right? Many you know this is very very well documented that they did this. So Katine, yeah, could have been the same thing. Anyway, though, even with all that, you know, they say every bad thing you can possibly say about the Red Army. But because for that reason, I think you can't but come out of it with a great appreciation of the heroism 
of the Red Army and of the soldiers of the Soviet Union, right? Of whatever ethnicity, of whatever gender. You have uh, Belarusian people were particularly heroic. They resisted to the end and they died at the hands of the Nazis together with their Jewish neighbors. Uh, they fought to the end. Uh, and there were many people in many other countries that fought to the end. Um, but Ukraine was one where there were some really bad, bad motherfuckers. And they got in there. And they caused a lot of trouble. And they're back out today. They're back out today. And uh, they did a no growth. They're doing all the same tropes. They're doing tropes where I'm going to, for the album art or whatever of this episode, I'm going to put up... A uh, social media post where an Azov uh, member is saying, physiognomy never lies. The choice is clear. And he's put up a picture of uh, Donetsk uh, People's Republic leader and an Azov leader. And the, it's, the difference is supposed to be clearly that the Russian uh, Eastern hordesman kind of, you know, the, that's the name of the Golden Horde, actually. Uh, in Turkish is very similar to orc as well. That's interesting to think about too. Uh, and they have that all in their mind. They have all that history of the Golden Horde, um, the, the Eastern nomadic evil hordesman is coming for you. And the pollution, the racial pollution of, of that needs to be expelled with all their round faces and uh, darkish skin and uh, flabby bodies as opposed to our wonderful uh, jawlines and chins. This is some of the worst of kind of German ideology, German racism, right? And uh, that's what we need to fight against. That's what we need to fight against. They have, they have these phys physiognomy ideas, and for them, uh, you know, it's Eastern. That, too, has its, its kind of dialectical echoes or prefigurements, right? Rumblings, early rumblings in Islamic legends about Gog and Magog being the giants of chaos that lie beyond the gates at the end of the world. Somewhere out to the east, there are gates past which there is nothing but chaos and evil, and that's maybe where the devil is with all his minions, and maybe at the end of the world, that'll get opened up, and, you know, the devil will come out, and then there'll be all this, you know, this kind of eschatology, right? Apocalyptic uh, battle that might happen. And uh, so it's it has roots, that legend, uh, Tolkien-ish legend, which I've just traced its roots not through Beowulf, but in fact through Spanish uh, knight's tales. It even does have roots in some Islamic ideas about what lies to the east, um, the, the infidels of India and beyond. So in this moment, uh, definitely we want to oppose this kind of mythology, oppose the uh, valorization of Ukraine, um, yeah, and its, its heroes and whatever. Um, that's not the kind of heroes that we need. You know, that's not to say that Russia is, is unconditionally to be supported in its current form. Um, well, nobody's unconditionally to be supported. That's not dialectical, is it? Um, but, you know, at the, in the moment, dialectically, I think it's very, very appropriate to support the temporary uh, special military expedition at the moment because the Americans knew exactly what they were getting into. 
um, and they're going to get exactly what they wanted out of it. I think uh, lots of destruction and lots of pictures and lots of, you know, again, they're, they're taking pictures of all the destruction and uh, certainly on the TV here in Japan, everything is being shown as this is what the Russians are doing. And they totally want to whip the liberals up into an imperialist frenzy and then set them loose against China. And I really hope the next Ukraine doesn't turn out to be Japan. I mean, it'll be Taiwan, first of all, of course, but uh, we'll be entangled in anything that happens over here, too. So fun times. Um, people are not quite as there isn't quite that level of liberal brainwashing for one. Um, I mean, there is, there's a segment of of the journalists and uh you know certain certain kinds of people are running in that direction but uh it's it's limited in some ways although the renegade revisionist japanese communist party is rushing to support uh they even supported bringing zelensky virtually to speak to the japanese diet just uh very little hope, actually, that when they go to amend the Constitution to make it extra possible for Japan to participate directly in a conflict with China, for example, uh, that there will be any left-wing opposition to this. Uh, there's going to be, they're growing liberal warmongers, even here in Japan. It's a little bit alarming, actually, that. But anyway, um, yeah, they're getting what they wanted for the moment. And what they want, I think, is, is limited, controlled destruction of civil infrastructure, um, very much like with ISIS versus uh, Rojava. You have a kind of liberalish force and a right-wing force, and the, they're just the, the goal, their real target of both of them is the civilian population and the civilian infrastructure, which needs to be destroyed in order to cut down on the excess of fixed capital in the world, right? And the, that's what's causing the low rate of profit. And that's why we need a world war or we need revolution. We need a revolutionary change in relations of production, failing capitalism that is not able to feed humanity. It's not able to keep the planet habitable for humanity. It needs to be... Uh, done away with, we need to get to the new system. But isn't it interesting that, okay, in previous systems, though, uh, what really ushered in industrial, well, yeah, what really ushered in early modern empires and then ultimately industrial capital? It was white supremacist Europe. And white supremacist Europe was born as a reaction against merchant capital in the Islamic world. So we can know that even if whatever dark forces are unleashed on the world today, whatever jinn, whatever giants, whatever Andriagos go raging about, they will only become tools of the continued unfolding of humanity's destiny they cannot help but bring about the change that is coming we know this and we we do have to act uh as if we know this right that's this is where i would part company um with people who are being gnostic in the in the real sense of just saying it's just enough that i just know i know the truth and i'll be one of the ones who knows what was really happening how how fucked we are right no no you got it 
if the the question you should be asking is are you given that you know how bad things are um are you going to dedicate yourself to getting us free from this and again the concrete steps you can take start a reading group reach out to people around you talk to the masses talk to any person talk to anyone uh someone who might not agree with you at all just you can dialogue have dialogue back and forth and you find like-minded people you form a reading group to read and act in whatever kind of way that's what i would suggest first of all uh join tenant struggles you know what you do with the 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 group that you form or join uh will depend on your reading of your particular situation but uh i think tenant activism is is a really great spot right now i saw that facebook just deleted uh or it's prohibiting post uh, posting a certain article about the rising rent because it is discriminatory against landlords so that would be an area that concretely you could you can and should get involved in and if you i th- i think that's the good life right now that's the good life right now to know that you gave everything that you could to this struggle and then after that whatever happens it'll be fine and you will have been yourself and you will have acted in accordance with your true nature and you'll have no regrets i'm fergal schmudlock and i have anointed you with the anointing of the kingless generation for this episode i'm very honored to have outro music contributed by listener patron member of the kingless generation Lai Hall of the Stalo and Métis nations, whose lands are currently under the rule of the settler government of Canada. What up, fellow anointed ones? This is Lai Hall hitting you with the track. Uh, favorite of all my elders, but I um, want to remind you, remind you all there's a better place to be found here, here on earth. Uh, though I'm sure there's another one in the sky, but without further ado, this is translated by Chief Bobby Joseph and Chief Wawakidi of the Namgis.
一颗格外大牛块，拉哈一颗格外里，拉哈咪们，拉哈拉哈嘿，关起大门，出鬼门，一块油条，俺哈撒哈拉。Las laibanis tanaman, kuisun suam tleda kanayu wakayutli kigami ikagawai dagu kwatlu ikagawali. Shout out, get him den checkpoint. Shout out what's what and shout out Gixan. Peace and love.